And now, live from beautiful Myrtleby, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Folks, my guest tonight is a world-renowned libertarian author and speaker. He has written many books uh, from... Here, let me... In fact, I can pull up the book so you can take a look at them. From Mises to Marx... Uh, post-capitalist society and the challenge of economic calculation as well as orwell your orwell uh and uh, most recently he has written the mystery of fascism which is a collection of his uh, essays where he talks about the differences between far-right socialism and far-left socialism uh ladies and gentlemen my fellow americans please join me in welcoming to the show mr david ramsey Steele. Uh, David, Mr. Steele, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really interested to get your perspective on some things. I, I appreciate you coming on my show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and folks, be sure to chime in with your thoughts and comments. Muddied admins are standing by to tell you whether you are right or wrong. Now, uh, Mr. Steele, first, by the way, oh, I should have asked. Should, do you go by Mr. Steele, Dr. Steele? Well, David will do. David? Okay, I'll just go by David. Yes. Okay. Or Dr. Well, Steele, or Mr. Steele, or you slimy Dr. prick. Um, you slimy prick. Whatever. That would be interesting if I just did that with no context. Um, no, we'll go, we'll, we'll go with David if that's okay, because I, I ask people to call me Spike, so we'll go with David. Now, David, this is your first time on My Fellow Americans, and anytime I have a, a libertarian on my show for the first time, I always ask as my first question, what was it that brought you to libertarianism? Was it kind of an aha moment or sort of a gradual evolution over time? I actually know the answer to this, but I, 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 it's an interesting story, so I'd like to hear it. Yes. Uh, everyone, everyone has their story of how they became a libertarian. Tell us the Steele story. Well, between 1963 and 1971, I was uh, a Marxist and a fairly dedicated Marxist. And I would say that before 1963, I accepted a lot of Marxism because it was in the zeitgeist, you know, that, uh, without calling myself a Marxist. Right. Um, in 1970, I had a conversation with a, a libertarian. I was at the University of Hull, which is in the northeast of England. And it was a very odd place because it had two anarcho-capitalists, probably the only two anarcho-capitalists anywhere in a university uh, in the United Kingdom in, in, in 1970. Yeah, and one of yeah. them, whose name is Mark Brady, he's still a libertarian, still alive and living in, in uh, California. Um, we, we were having this conversation and he said, well, just how do you answer the, uh, the Mises economic calculation argument against the possibility of socialism? Uh, and I said, well, uh, what is that? <laughs> and I, I had actually heard of Mises because, um, because I'd heard of him as an anti-Keynesian. And as a, right. as a very strict Orthodox Marxist, I was anti-Keynesian too. Uh, so I, in looking through the library at things, of course, in those days, we didn't have the internet. You had to go to the library. Um, looking for things that were uh, critical of Keynes, I came across this person, Mises, um, but um, so he immediately told me what the um, uh, what this economic calculation argument was. And it was an argument put forward by Ludwig von Mises in yeah. 1920. And um, as he explained it to me within within seconds, I thought to myself inwardly, that's a very powerful argument. But of course, I didn't give any sign that that was my in, inner reaction. I said, that's ridiculous. Right. 
the working class will know how to handle problems like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that so the 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 Mises economic calculation argument got, rose, runs as follows, really, that it's impossible to operate a modern industrial economy without the information provided by market prices. Uh, and if you have market prices, you have to have uh, private property in the means of production, which is by definition, incompatible with socialism. So um, so what happened then was I, I started thinking about this and talking to people about it and reading about it. Um, and I would say, uh, again, with again, inwardly, um, uh, without telling many people, uh, I began to think that socialism was out of the question. I should say, by the way, that... <clears throat> What I called socialism in 1970, I would now say was Marxian communism, uh, because socialism means a great many different things and has right, meant a great right. many different things historically. My version of socialism in 1970 was uh, Marxian communism. Um, and uh, I came to the conclusion that this was an impossible uh, system, that, that Mises was right. Um, so... Uh, it took me, a, you know, a, one of the things I'm working on now is a general theory of belief systems. And one of the one of the phenomena that I've noticed in when people change their ideas radically, they often keep quiet about it for a while. Uh, they don't they don't tell the world that they've changed their right. mind. Um, and what this means is, you know, that if you find uh, enthusiastic adherence of some belief system, um, let's say the moon is. Uh, let's say you meet 20 of them and you're very impressed by how articulate they are um, and how convinced they are, you can be sure that two or three of them are already in, in, inwardly have left. <laughs> they just, haven't, e got to, they just haven't got to the point of actually publicly leaving. Even, um, a, even as they are still being active in promoting yes, the yes, ideology, yes. they've already left it in their heads? Um, and, uh, you know, one, one of the things about belief systems uh, is that uh, all belief systems, at least all belief systems where free competition in belief systems is allowed, right. um, have a high turnover. And one of the interesting things about this, this is straying a bit from, from uh, how I became a libertarian, but um, one of the interesting things about this is that the very earliest independent reference to Christianity, which is uh, a letter sent to the emperor, um, uh, by a minor official in the Roman Empire, Pliny the Younger, his name was. He was governor of um, what we would now call part of Turkey. Um, and um, he wrote to the emperor uh, saying, there are Christians around here, they're making a nuisance of themselves, what should I do about them? And the emperor wrote back and said, no, this is what you do. Um, but the interesting thing, there's very little information about Christianity in this brief letter from Pliny the Younger. But one of the things he does reveal is there are a lot of people around who used to be Christians and are no longer. So, you know, the Christianity, even when it was very early and growing, expand, slowly expanding, had a high turnover. And it's true of all belief systems, as long as the turnover is permitted, of course, um, by the state, uh, that uh, people join uh, some belief system and uh, then they leave <laughs> uh, many cases they leave so that's an interesting point about that but um yeah so going back to my personal odyssey uh, i got more and more interested in free market economics um and um <clears throat> read quite a bit about uh, economic theory although i was actually uh, a sociologist at the time 
Um, and um, I, I sort of <clears throat> announced to the world that I was a libertarian uh, in about 1973, uh, in, in 1973, in fact. Um, and um, uh, that's caused, caused a big upset among some of my friends, but, um, uh, but uh, that's what you expect, right? I, you know, in certain in certain circles, yes. Now, at the time when you announced that, was the term libertarian fairly well known, or was it still in its kind of? I mean, that was still when it was sort of in its nascency, wasn't it? Or, or was well, it well in known Brit- in, in Britain? It was less well known than in the U.S. Right. Right. Um, and in fact, there were a lot of people who um, if, who used the word libertarian to mean like left wing anarchist. Um, that, right. That would that would be a common uh, meaning given to the term. So, uh, so, you know, usually, well, not usually, but fairly frequently, I had to explain what libertarianism was, you know. So, um, so that it would not from the school of like uh, um, Proudhone or something like that, but from, right, the, right, from, the, right. from the school of, of Mises and, and, and Rothbard and so forth. Or I guess yes. this was before, well, no, this, wouldn't, this would have been the same time as Rothbard, yeah. Yeah, Rothbard was very much around at the time, yes. Yeah. And um, I visited the U.S. in 1977. Uh, and met Rothbard, and then he visited Britain a little bit after that, and I met him again. So um, I got to know him, I would say, in a superficial way anyway. Uh, had some conversations with him. Um, so uh, I knew Rothbard. Um, I'm afraid uh, I have to say that um, I tend to be a heretic in everything. And um, when I joined the libertarian movement, effectively, uh, in, uh, in 1973, there were certain things that you were expected to believe. And if you didn't, um, uh, you, w- you were under suspicion of not being a libertarian. One of these was natural rights. Um, ah. and, uh, so, um, and the other was uh, praxeology, the Misesian system right. of uh, economic praxis, theory. Yeah. And yeah. I came to reject both of these. Uh, uh, at least I, re- I rejected natural rights in the form that it was held by libertarians at the time. And the, the, basically, um, Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard uh, were the sort of the, the spectrum of natural rights theory. I came to, re- to reject that and I came to reject um, uh, the whole um, praxeological approach to economics as well. So I became a Chicago boy and then um, ideologically and then I moved to Chicago. So I'm a Chicago boy in two ways. So are you are you you would adhere yourself to the Chicago School of Economics as well as actually living in Chicago or? Yeah, yeah, that's that was what I meant. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I, it's been it's been um, uh, 50 years since I read uh, Milton Friedman's essay on the methodology of positive economics. And right. I remembered I had some disagreements with it even. But I, but I agreed with the gist of it, which is that. Um, economics is an empirical science and it can be tested empirically. Uh, and to the extent that it's not an empirical science, it's not science because it, if it can't be tested, I'm a Popperian, by the way. Um, that's one heresy I haven't uh, kicked over yet. Um, and um, so science is what is, uh, among other things, not, it's not the only thing about science, but one of the things about science is that, uh, it, that its propositions can be falsified. In principle, so you can lay down the conditions that would ha- that would be observed that would falsify um, science. That is very interesting. It's good to know that it's not a new thing that libertarians 
actively look for even the smallest amount of orthodoxy that you someone doesn't adhere to to label you as not being a real libertarian. I, I thought we had started that with social media. I thought that was a... a, a, a oh, no. I, I assume that that was part of cancel culture, that we were just actively looking to cancel libertarians if they, if they strayed even remotely from orthodoxy. So I'm not sure if that makes me feel better or worse, but it's a good thing to know. Um, well, it's, it's characteristic of belief systems down the ages that they have a tendency to become more rigid and narrow and to exclude more people. Uh, and then there are countervailing forces as well. But that's a characteristic um, phenomenon that goes on with belief systems. To become cloistered and dogmatic in, in, yeah, in their presentation. Yeah, to, 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 to uh, find new ways of excluding people as not being true believers. And by the way, uh, it's not altogether regrettable because it is an essential... If you, if you form a, a, some kind of association of people who agree on their beliefs... You do have to decide what beliefs count for this association and what don't count. So, it, so this is um, this is a, a feature of all belief systems that they have that problem. They have to do that, and tra- circumstances change. And so, um, the reasons people have for departing from the straight and narrow of the, of the belief system uh, will change with circumstances, and and th- things come along that nobody anticipated fifty years earlier. Uh, and and the belief system has to adapt to that, you know. But without that rigidity, it wouldn't be a belief system to begin with because you could right, just believe right. whatever you wanted. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, it's fair yeah. enough. I thought we were special, but here we go. It turns out no, it's everyone's yeah. like that. Yeah, um, <laughs> so in the in your book, The Mysteries of Fascism, I'll pull that Mystery. up again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, The Mystery of Fascism. Uh, you talk about the differences between f- what you call far-right socialism and far left socialism, and one of the examples you use is the, I guess, the evolution of, of Mussolini from being sort of a standard issue Marxist radical to becoming a fa- not just a fascist, but one of the founders of fascism and one yeah. of the most, uh, right. you know, uh, 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 infamous leaders of, of fascism. Well, you know, Talk- that's an interesting point. Was Mussolini the founder of fascism? He certainly was the co-founder, along with a few others, mm-hmm. of a movement that be- that became called fascism. Um, but the, uh, I think, and I point this out in this article, uh, that um, f- what we co- what we know as fascism as it existed in, say, 1920, 19, well, 1919, let's say, when Mussolini announced this fascist movement. Um, incidentally, that's the same year that the Communist International was founded in, um, in Moscow, and that uh, the Bolsheviks stopped calling themselves Bolsheviks and called, started calling themselves communists. Communist, so right. those two things happened simultaneously, um, more or less. Uh, but the, but the, um, the ideological movement that we call fascism, which was announced by Mussolini in 1919, you can date it to before the First World War. Uh, and what, what, what uh, <coughs> it would be called national syndicalism or productivist syndicalism and it was a, it was in many ways a kind of a, adaptation of marxism uh that the the, the syndicalist or, or certain groups of syndicalists moved from being extreme leftists uh and therefore in very internationalist and mussolini had done time in prison for anti-war demonstrations and, and a very you know there was a period when he was he took seriously Marx's dictum that the working class has no has no um, country, 
And of course, unlike many leaders of socialism, Mussolini really was from the working class. Um, uh, but um, uh, but but uh, the, so the, 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 a group of syndicalists, or mainly in France, but also in other southern European countries like Italy, um, uh, they moved from being on the extreme left to be to basically they thought the working class let them down by not being revolutionary. And so they and they saw that the revolution was not going to come to fruition in the advanced industrial countries. So what was the hope for the more economically backward countries like Italy, uh, who obviously in the absence of a socialist revolution, uh, their only hope was rapid industrial development. Uh, and that had to be done by capitalism. But of course, they gave they couldn't accept laissez-faire or anything like that. Liberalism was anathema to all these people. Uh, they, they hated lib- old-fashioned liberalism, um, what we would call libertarianism, right, uh, right, like, right. The, like the plague. Um, and um, uh, so, uh, so it was a kind of modified capitalism that they that they uh, capitalism. But capitalism had its uses in industrializing, uh, and they wanted to make full use of capitalism in that sense. Well, in fact, fascism and socialism sold themselves as kind of a third position or centrist position between, like, Marxist communism and, and you know, I guess what we would call libertarian or liberalism, you know, like free market economics, uh, mm-hmm. or, or from a... Uh, um, from a, I guess, maybe foreign policy standpoint, the difference between uh, between the, the 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 Marxist position and like the imperialist position, they they considered themselves what they called third position or basically a, a centrist position, right? Right. Well, of course, um, uh, countries like Italy, um, it, nationalism was very much aligned with the idea that uh, the established imperial powers, Britain uh, especially. But, but France as well, uh, Belgium and so on, uh, had carved up the the the, uh, the third world, what we now call the third world, the the, yep. the unde- undeveloped world, let's say, uh, non-industrially developed world. They carved it up, and and um, you know, in the First World War, um, uh, uh, countries like um, like Germany talked about a place in the sun, you know. Uh, because Brit- Britain and France had carved, had got all the places in the sun. So, in other words, they wanted colonies, and that went along with nationalism. So, when the when the syndic when the syndicalists turned to um, to nationalism, uh, because they saw they 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 saw um, they were practically minded people, uh, in or they thought of themselves as such, uh, and they 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 adopted. Uh, the, the principle that um, uh, we should cast aside dogmas if they are proven to be outworn. Uh, and they saw that uh, the working class really wasn't interested in proletarian internationalism. They were quite interested in killing an, uh, the, uh, the, the enemy of uh, a foreign country if they were told to. Uh, right. And so, in other words, the working class were more nationalistic than internationalistic. And that was spontaneous. It existed in the working class. And so uh, this was part of the reason why uh, they, they became. And, but they also they saw nationalism as, um, as a vehicle for anti-liberal revolution. Uh, uh, you know the the fascists saw themselves as revolutionaries, right? Um, right. And they saw themselves as more practical-minded revolutionaries. So then, when you talk about the difference between far-right socialism and far-left socialism, what are the key defining characteristics 
that in terms of difference between the two is it nationalism versus internationalism or is there is there more to it besides just that well um that's an interesting question uh exactly what all the differences are uh i would say you know that um that uh, there was a crisis in 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 marxism and the crisis was that capitalism was not turning out the way marx expected and people responded to this crisis in many different ways. Uh, the, the the people we now call the social democrats um, were the people who, who in, in practice, said, well, we've got to live with capitalism because, right. uh, like, having everything owned by the government somehow, for some re- obscure reason, doesn't work. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, there, so there you get you get the social democratic parties of Western Europe, including... The Labour Party in Britain, which didn't call itself social democratic, but it right. was very similar. Uh, and of course, the Labour Party was unusual uh, in that it didn't have a Marxist, predominantly Marxist. There were Marxists in the Labour Party, but they didn't predominate. The cliche is a good, uh, crude guide that the Labour Party owed more to Methodism than to Marx. Uh, but they had the same ideas about socialism as the continental social democrats. And the the the, so, the social democrats uh, evolved gradually a piecemeal over a period of time uh, without anybody really noticing the ho- the whole direction of their evolution uh, from from being parties pledged to replace capitalism with socialism to parties pledged to administer capitalism uh, in with reforms uh, you know with um, a welfare state and things like that right, so right. so that's what happened in Western Europe and the the Bolsheviks got hunkered down uh, in um, in Russia. Uh, they couldn't say that uh, Marx had been right, because Marx had always said, you can't start a, uh, a socialist revolution in a backward country. <laughs> you know, was, this was the ABC of Marxism. You don't, right. uh, you don't try to introduce socialism in a backward, an economically backward country, a pe- predominantly peasant country, alone in, in isolation from the advanced industrial countries. This was you know, this was uh, Marxism 101 in 1917, and Lenin and Trotsky, they were the heretics who turned against that and said, no, we're going to try. Well, they couldn't go back to the old Marxist view because they'd been killing the old Marxists, uh, the Mensheviks and, the, and the other Marxists in Russia. Right. The Bolsheviks uh, had a secret police that kept on knocking on people's doors and carting them off and shooting them. Um, so... Uh, this started started in 1918. You know, it wasn't it wasn't it didn't wait for Stalin. Uh, this was this was Bolshevism. So they couldn't go back because they couldn't say, well, we were wrong and we've been we've been slaughtering all these thousands of, of uh, Marxists uh, because they had the wrong idea. But it turns out they were right. So they had to persist in the in the in the idea that um, that, that that they were on the right track and they were going to. Uh, it was just turning out to be a much l- longer and more protracted process. So they were going to, they were going to build, eventually build the communist society where money would be abolished, and uh, that was the dream of all the Marxists. Now the 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 um, the national syndicalists, uh, you know, the syndicalists. If you if you if you look at it, say the period uh, leading up to the First World War, syndicalism was the one exception to uh, the domination of socialism by this state ownership model. 
um, uh, you know, if you, if you go back earlier, go back into the 19th century, socialism meant all kinds of things. There was, um, there was a medley of different ideas captured by the word socialism, even right, things right. like workers owning, the, owning and running their own companies yep. was called socialism. You know, so uh, this is what a lot of people don't understand, that when John Stuart Mill had kind words to say about socialism, he wasn't thinking about the state owning everything, which not for a moment would he have would he have had any kind words for. Uh, right. But the socialism meant all different kinds of things. Um, the one exception to the dominance of this state socialism by the end of the 19th century uh, is syndicalism. Uh, and syndicalism were the, the real radical left, the people who said, no, this... Uh, electing people to parliament and nationalizing industry is not where we want to go. We want something more, a more radical break with bourgeois society. Um, and so it, it, it was something that, uh, that um, emerged in tactics. Instead of elections, we have the general strike. Uh, we have direct action. Uh, but it was also in, the, in their vision of the future society, it was not so much the government takes over everything and then plans everything rationally to create abundance for all, which was the socialist dream. Uh, right. The syndicalist, syndicalist idea was it's bottom-up uh, trade union. It's syndicat is the French word for uh, trade union. And um, so it's a trade union organization. Originally, it was trade unions. Then, then of course, they, they came into collision with the bureaucrats who run most trade unions. So they became, uh, it became a different kind of thing. But it was still this bottom-up idea of... Um, a kind of socialism arising from from the grassroots, uh, from the self-organization of workers in the factories and in uh, the other workplaces. So, um, so syndicalism, uh, you know, even in the United States, there was the Wobblies. You know, this, this syndicalism had its even in the United States, where socialism of all kinds has always um, uh, been underrepresented compared right. with Western Europe or all of Europe. Um, there were, but you still had the Wobblies who were syndicalists. They were straightforward uh, syndicalists and shared all the ideas of the syndicalists. Now, what happened was that a group of syndicalists uh, began to become um, national. They, they saw that there was no hope for, um, for uh, in, in uh, you, expecting the, the most advanced countries in the world to have a socialist revolution was not going to happen. This dawned on them in stages. Um, uh, therefore, we're stuck with our backwardness in Italy, in Spain, places like that. Um, uh, so what are we going to do? Well, uh, a group of syndicalists, influential, uh, um, turned to the idea that we support everybody who, who is productive. Now, they had a very narrow idea of what was productive. They didn't have a sort of all-encompassing economic theory idea, um, right. and they, they, they were suspicious of uh, banks and financial, um, uh, financial uh, institutions. Um, but, the, but, the, but this was their idea. So, they, so basically, the bourgeoisie could be on the side of the revolution as long as they were increasing production and therefore industrializing these backward countries. So this, this led them gradually into becoming uh, more and more uh, nationalistic in a traditional sense. And they, they switched from being anti-war to being pro-war uh, because it, part, of the na part of nationalism is uh, you've got to have a war now and then to show your mettle and to, uh, to um, bring about change, radical change. So, um, th so this is what happened with Mussolini.
that I was going to say with Mussolini, that was his first big break from uh, from you know from the Marxists was that he became one of a very small group of pro-war socialists and yes. actually enlisted in the war and became a, a, a you know injured in the war and became a war hero. Uh, whereas the the standard Marxist uh, uh, position was being anti-war because they were internationalists who didn't want to you know get involved in the in the squabbles of the various nation states. Um, which they didn't even think uh, legitimately should exist in the first place, and uh, and so when he made that break, uh, he ended up. Uh, uh, that was the beginning of his, you know, uh, right. fall from right. grace among socialists. What was that? What drove uh, him becoming pro-war? Was the idea that that war was needed to test the mettle of the people, or was he just sort of generally becoming more nationalist in general? Um, I think you see. Um, generally speaking, the most radical of the syndicalists didn't join the Italian Socialist Party. Um, They remained outside it and attacked it. But there were people like Mussolini who were in the Socialist Party but read this very attentively. They read this this, uh, syndicalist stuff very attentively. And in fact, um, uh, Mussolini had... um, uh, he was he was the editor of the uh, the Socialist Party of Italy's main uh, newspaper, um, but he w- he also had his own journal, which was called Utopia, uh, and it was a discussion journal for people seeking to clear away old dogmas of Marxism and move forward to a more concrete, practical vision of Marxism. Um, and, uh, you know, very famous names in Marxism were associated with Mussolini in this in this journal, wrote for this journal. Uh, and, and so he was Mussolini was someone who uh, could easily have been, the, uh, you know, the leader of the socialist movement. He was the most outstanding socialist in, this, right. in the Socialist Party of Italy by, by far. I mean, he was clearly uh, the, the outstanding figure. He could have been either a prime minister of a socialist government or the leader or a socialist or a, uh, an Italian Lenin. <laughs> he could have been either of those if he'd wanted right. to. Uh, um, and this is why I think it's, um, it's ridiculous to suggest that he sold out. You know, he didn't sell out at all. Uh, he tried for years to get the working class to become revolutionary and then realized it, this wasn't working. Um, so, uh, and of course, uh, what you find with all these people in that leftist milieu of, of, around the time of the First World War is the idea of going back to liberalism was unthinkable. You know, any any talk about laissez-faire, they would just burst out laughing. You know, this was just so ridiculous that it right. was just beyond consideration. So you had to come up with something that was anti-bourgeois, uh, that was um, that was revolutionary, uh, and that um, uh, but but that would have some practical application, would work. Uh, uh, and um, you know, so um, so th- it's an intellectual development. Mussolini's development was purely intellectual. It wasn't it wasn't uh, opportunistic. I mean, he was an opportunist in in his techniques, but he was driven by his intellectual vision. Um, and uh, and it's an interest. He was an interesting character. You know, he's uh, um, extremely intelligent. Uh, you know, his he, he was far far more uh, intellectual substance than someone like Lenin. 
<laughs> far more. There's no comparison. Uh, and, um, you know, of course, it had a sad outcome. <laughs> um, Which is but, um, what's interesting is, is Mussolini is often portrayed as a buffoon or, you know, someone who was, you know, kind of a, just a strong man who wasn't didn't have much, you know, uh, uh, much rigorous thought behind his actions. It was more just might rate makes right. Uh, but even before reading about your your uh, you know your take on on Mussolini and his tra- and his evolution, that's not what it was. And I, I don't know how much of that was just a byproduct of World War II propaganda that you know he was an idiot and that you know so that's what in in the uh, Anglo-American world that's just what we've been told is that he was an idiot or a buffoon or whatever you know they portrayed him as this you know Italian monkey or whatever but but he was actually I mean a, a very smart guy a very not just smart a very intellectual person he just got taken into a very weird direction with it obviously right right no um no Mussolini was 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 very sharp um, I mean, the, the, the buffoon image comes from the fact that um, uh, I don't want to um, insult a nationality, but um, the Italians didn't fight very well, put it that way, <laughs> um, in, the, in, the, in the Second World War or even in the Spanish Civil War and things like that, you know, where okay. they had some uh, military. They, they, uh, for one reason or another, uh, without going into that, they were pretty hopeless. Um, and... Um, and therefore, you know, uh, it, Italy had to be bailed out by Hitler. You know, they Hitler had to right. uh, save Mussolini's skin. Um, and then, of course, um, when in the this short-lived uh, uh, Italian Social Republic that was with Mussolini in, reinstalled by Hitler, um, right. they became more more overtly socialist. You know, in the in the fascist period where it was what Mussolini thought. He always attacked socialism. He said, we're not socialists. Uh, right. Whereas, of course, the, the National Socialist government of Hitler said, we are socialists. And that's one of the reasons why the Nazis would never join any of these international fascist uh, uh, meetings or, or conferences and things, because they, were, they said, we're not fascists, we're socialists. Um, and um, uh, But, um, you know, so in this short-lived period... Mussolini had to eat his words and say, yes, socialism is a good thing. <laughs> um, so that's just and of course, he was a bit of a buffoon at the end, because because I mean, uh, one of the problems with with a, a, an organization that exalts the leader and gives the leader tremendous um, discretion is that the leader may get you into a war. <laughs> uh, and it's a and it was a disastrous decision. And it was purely um, it was purely. Uh, Mussolini's decision he could have right. got, he could have said no we're staying out or he could have said we'll support the allies like we did in the first world war um and then not only um did they did they agree to the axi- the axis of steel the, uh, with uh, with Germany but right. in 1938 they started introducing all this anti-semitic things you know most of most of Mussolini's mistresses were Jewish and there were Jewish people of very high rank in the, right. in the fascist party. You know, there were, there were, there were, there were, it was not in the least anti-Semitic uh, prior to 1938. Right, but, right, right. But, but Mussolini felt he, well, the exact motives are obscure, but presumably he felt that he had to make this gesture to keep Hitler uh, supporting him and backing him up in every way. Uh, and of course it's ironic because, up until 1938, even as late as the Munich, um, the Munich uh, Agreement in 1938, uh, diplomats and, and politicians in Western Europe thought of Mussolini as, a, as the 
uh, the countercheck to Hitler, you know, right. because because uh, Mussolini had stopped uh, the, this uh, this um, uh, this uh, coup in Austria um, uh, by putting troops in. It's all bluff, but he put troops in, and the and the the National Socialist back coup fell apart. Uh, although Dolphus, the uh, the uh, prime minister, was killed, um, and um, you know. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Mussolini was quite scathing about Hitler's racial theories prior to 1938, you know. Um, uh, so, but, you know, so because it, the logic of the situation forced him into a position where he had to um, go along with this anti-Semitism um, and, um, uh, you know, get involved in this war that uh, was, was predictably disastrous. That's interesting. So... He was kind of beclowned by his own folly. Uh, so it's interesting that that at least by 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 your recollection or by your by your measure, fascism was actually a not just a reactionary movement to the the problems with communism, but actually a reaction to many socialist revolutionaries who refused to acknowledge that maybe decentralizing power and having more of a laissez-faire way of looking at things was better because that was anathema to anything they thought, they instead went further into even more radical schools of thought and ended up getting into things like fascism. That's fascinating. Right. So, and, and of course, you know, um, after the Second World War, uh, you got these um, so-called socialist movements in the Third World, which bear a distinct resemblance to fascism. Right. You know, they, they, they talk about socialism, uh, and they're def- they sort of come out with this anti-liberal and anti-capitalist rhetoric, right. um, uh, and they and they and they glorify the leader whose pictures everywhere, yep. <laughs> and um, and they um, and they are very belligerent and and generally the African socialism is is really African fascism. Um, well, in in, you, in in China, you know, they're called a communist country, but if you look at the real the hallmarks of how things are happening there. It looks like a command fascist economy, and and you know, Dengism mm-hmm. is a is a far cry different than Maoism. So it, it's it, the theory stands up. Right, right. By the way, uh, a, a lot of this that I mention in this particular article, which gives the, its name to the type, it's the title of that volume of collected articles. Um, a lot of it is not original to me in the slightest. It's um, a lot of it comes from um, well, I would say the most outstanding. Uh, American writer on fascism was Gregor, A. James Gregor was his name. He died a couple of years ago, um, and he wrote a lot about fascism. He wrote, you know, what, uh, and it's worth reading his. Um, uh, I think it, the book is called uh, "Young Mussolini and the Origins of Fascism," which traces Mussolini's intellectual development, and you know, you realize that this this was somebody who thought deeply about things uh, and wrote was was a. Uh, writer of talent um and um uh, you know you, you as you read about mussolini you know the the munich conference in um in 1938 there was mussolini there was chamberlain there was hitler there were all these different people uh and mussolini was the only person present who could follow the discussion in all four languages in which it was conducted mm. uh, and then and, and he he was a came from an almost destitute family and uh, and when he was in his teens he was starving he was a migratory laborer in Switzerland, and yep. uh, uh, and as soon as he could keep body and soul together, what did he do? He started attending Pareto's lectures at the university. 
uh, you know, just going in to the classroom and listening. Um, that was the kind of person Mussolini was, you know, very, very intellectually alive and very curious uh, and um, very much a person from the toiling masses. <laughs> That's fa- that is fascinating. So applying this, how much of this, you know, when we talk about the differences between far right uh, socialism and far left socialism, how much of this applies to, you know, it's it's hard often to apply these types of things to com- modern American politics, if for no other reason than in the U.S., socialism has sort of, the term socialism has sort of just become a, uh, a slur against anything that a large number of Americans disagree with. So they'll say a specific program is socialism. Whether or not it actually has anything to do with socialism, they don't like it, so it's socialism. And then they get counter-accused of being socialist because they often support things that their party does that are similar to the things that they don't like from the other party. But how, how much would you say that this, you know, looking at, for example, the, the uh, I guess, political spectrum in the U.S. government, uh, how much of this applies or do you think it, it doesn't apply at all? The, the difference is, you know, I guess the way I should ask this is, do you think that this government is far right socialism, far left socialism, some combination of the two or n- not even anything? You know, when you say sort? this government, do you mean the Trump administration or do you mean the continuity of all the governments for the past few years? Uh, I guess I would say at least for the last couple of years, I don't see a huge departure between say the trump administration and the congress that was there and say the obama administration and the congress that was there maybe maybe right. you do so right. I, i'll let you i'll let you define it uh it's it's an, an odd thing i was just a couple of days ago i was just thinking i was sort of having a daydream and i was thinking uh imagine the trump uh, trump as he is now uh running against jack kennedy of 1960 yeah um and I would look at that and I would say, well, uh, look, just look at the policies. And I would say, well, um, this Trump has some, if I was just looking at the policies, I would say this guy Trump has some uh, uh, distinctly radical leftist um, inclinations and uh, definitely to the left of Jack Kennedy of 1960. Um, and... Uh, Given that, in, if, if it was Trump with his present ideas in 1960, or somehow you combine these two different historical periods, right. I would say I would marginally favor Jack Kennedy against Trump uh, on, on, on the policies, um, although I'd probably say there isn't much to choose between them. Right, um, right, right. But certainly, um, you know, th- this whole business of bullying the corporations to cut their prices and things like that is so, it is economic illiteracy but on the other hand it's politically very savvy people the masses like it uh they think it's great and and this is true of a lot of things that trump does uh that 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 make makes no sense economically uh but um but it's it's good persuasion it's good propaganda yeah Um, i I would i would argue that a lot of the the what we're seeing as bullying of of you know the corporations quote-unquote is often either being orchestrated or at least harnessed by large corporations 
who foster this mindset because they're the only ones that can weather the storm and they know it'll cut off all their smaller competitors. Like, for example, minimum wage increases, increasing regulations on businesses and things like that, and taxes and things like that. They know that they're the only, you know, Amazon, Walmart, Target, Microsoft, you know, these types of companies are the only ones who can weather the storm and it leaves Mm -hmm. all their smaller competitors in the dust. And so that whenever, you know, when the, when the, when it, when the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the chips fall where they may, it leaves them in a far better position right. because they right. only got a, they only got a flesh wound and everyone else got killed in the, in the, in the aftermath of it. Right. Right. No, I, I agree with that. And um, going back to this whole question of what socialism uh, means today, um, I'm, I'm of the opinion that um, there's a lot of exaggeration about this revival of socialism idea uh, because, you know, what happened in, Compare what happened in Western Europe with what happened in the United States. In Western Europe, um, you had socialist parties. So as I said, we're, we're, we're socialist party. We, we intend to abolish capitalism. The Labour Party right. had its famous Clause 4, um, to, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange. That's Clause 4 of the Labour Party, which was eventually... a. Uh, Many right-wing Labour leaders tried to get rid of it, but Tony Blair, to his credit, did get rid of it. That's one of the few things that are to his credit, by the way. Uh, but um, but um, uh, so the result of that is that in Europe, people don't have a horror of the word socialism like people used to until recently in the United States. Uh, because there are all these parties that call themselves socialists that have been been in office many times. The the sky hasn't fallen. They maybe have been a bit more inclined to increase uh, uh, Social Security payments than their more conservative rivals. But that's, you know, uh, they've been reasonably sensible. Uh, They've uh, they've been in favor of what was called the mixed economy. Um, And and, uh, really, um, what... What they what they're doing what they've been doing for since the Second World War is um, is administering welfare state capitalism uh, capitalism with a big welfare state right and with right. a certain and with a certain measure of uh, dirigism in uh, in in, in uh, sort of little gestures towards planning of industry that usually don't amount to much and get reversed after a few years, uh, you know. But but in the United States, it's different. One of the striking things about the United States to someone coming from England uh, would, would about, say, 20 years ago, would be that people, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people would just be horrified by the word socialism. Um, whereas people in, in Europe have got used to the idea that... that, that uh, parties can call themselves socialists, but they're not going to abolish capitalism. Um, uh, they're going to modify it, but then so is there. So are the conservative parties going to do that? You know, right. this is a, the degree of modification. Uh, now, sometimes you get little ripples like Margaret Thatcher, who actually reversed uh, uh, some of the things that have been accepted state incursions into capitalism by both Labour and Conservative. She she actually did something that was a, a new thing, a, a break. Um, but um, I, I think that what's, ha- what's, what's happening in the United States is largely that, um, that uh, people are becoming used to the word socialism. Uh, I, I would like to see, instead of asking people what they think of socialism, um, you could ask them a question like this. 
what percentage of, of the United States industry should be owned and controlled by the government? And how, what percentage of the population should be government employees? Now, in, um, in the 1930s, people who called themselves socialists would say 100%. Or they might say uh, 95%. They might say, well, you know, some small farmers, we could let them uh, survive for a few generations as right, private right. property owners. Uh, yeah. But in principle, the idea was that all of industry... Um, uh, you know, I've made a special study of George Orwell. And contrary to what a lot of people think, George Orwell was a very dogmatic and doctrinaire socialist. Um, he was converted to socialism in mid-1936, uh, and he remained a socialist uh, it, uh, until his death in January 1950. Uh, and he, he was very, um, he was very eloquent and, and put things very strikingly. So he often says things that are, that are a bit more clear-cut than most people who thought just like him would have said and one of the things he said was well socialism means the government owns everything and everybody's a government employee um and that that was the 1930s picture of socialism whether you were a member of the communist party the labor party um the ilp which was a an important um, minor party in britain uh or whatever you know whatever your um your affiliation if you called yourself a socialist that was what you wanted now what percentage of the american public today would say we would prefer everything to be owned by the government i don't know that it's increased much uh, over the past few decades socialism was an economic theory that meant if you plan it if your government owns everything and plans everything then uh, then you'll have a huge abundance super abundance of, of wealth uh, that you can treat everybody fairly because uh, we will have this superabundance of wealth. That was the promise of socialism. Um, now, uh, if you listen to um, uh, the radicals today, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, what's her name, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and people like that, uh, you don't hear anything like that. Or you, you, don't, you don't hear them. You hear them say, yeah, socialism, great. And they, they, the more that they see that it horrifies the Republicans, the more they say it. Right, uh, right. But, but it's not clear now. In 1915, um, uh, Bernie Sanders said, uh, made a public statement about what he meant by socialism. And he said, socialism is like what they've got in Denmark. Now, <laughs> it just so happens that, 19, uh, that Denmark and the United States of America are neck and neck in their degree of market freedom in business. Right, right. Uh, in fact, in 1915, when... when um, when Bernie Sanders made that statement, Denmark was a little more to, in the direction of laissez-faire capitalism than the United States. Um, uh, since then, it's gone the other way slightly. But uh, anyway, they're roughly the same in their degree of free market versus government involvement. Um, now, of course, um, uh, a lot of us might think that Bernie Sanders, when he says Denmark, he really means Russia uh, circa 1950. Uh, but but even if that's true, and I suspect that it might be, um, uh, he still thought it was a good thing to say to get people's support. Oh, socialism means something like Denmark. Well, you know, um, the Scandinavian countries are no more socialist than the United States. Absolutely not. Um, right. The, the, and, the, uh, the, the Americans, I guess, social Democrat, it's more about, from an economic standpoint, it's more about increasing and expanding the welfare state 
or increasing and expanding specific regulations on government that they perceive to help workers as opposed to the government's going to just control the the actual means of production they're going to just put a lot of guidelines down and they're going to have a very right. they're going to take a lot of the money from the private sector to massively fund you know the the welfare state that they want to see and then so then republicans who call themselves free market capitalists are basically saying we want somewhat less of that but still some of it so it's it's yes. it's them using very lofty terms to describe varying degrees of essentially the same right. thing, which is a, a mixed right. command economy. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, so so uh, and, and this has been fairly continuous. You see, I think that um, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, Americans, there would have been more Americans who would be horrified by the word socialism than today, right. especially in the younger age group. But it right. doesn't mean they were that it doesn't mean they were really uh, any more against socialism than they are today, uh, you know, in principle. Um, uh, and of course, government reg- some government regulation of capitalism is not the same as socialism. Um, right. And um, uh, although, according to people like Hayek, it, it has a tendency to lead in that direction. Um, so, um, you know, uh, so so basically, I I don't think that uh, we. Ha- I don't think the the big threat of today is is socialism. I don't see I don't see a movement arising to um, to take uh, to take industry into state ownership on a massive scale. Well, that is absolutely fascinating, and uh, I am uh, very honored to have had to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, I just uh, anytime I have a guest on, I always give them want to give them the final word. I want to give you a chance to talk about anything that you uh, that you didn't get a chance to say. If there's anything that you'd like to plug, tell people where they can find you and find out more. Uh, I give you as much time as you need. And, and the final word, uh, the uh, David Ramsey Steele, the floor is yours. Yes. Well, one of the disappointments uh, about, and I've mentioned this, it just sprang to my, sprung to my mind just now, <coughs> is that... Um, I published this book, um, The Mystery of Fascism, which is a collection of essays about all kinds of different topics. Hmm. The thing that I'm most disappointed in, strangely enough, is that this may seem weird and out of the way, is um, there's one of my chapters in that book is a refutation of the idea that we could be living in a simulation. And uh, I keep hearing this, that we could be living in a simulation. Uh, And um, we are living in a simulation. But then if you push back, they say, oh, we're probably living in a simulation. and, uh, you know, Scott Adams keeps on pushing this. It's hardly a day goes by without he mentions it. Um, and uh, there are other people who've, who uh, seriously think that the, this, this, I mean, now I do admit the world is pretty crazy, <laughs> um, especially this year. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, but, um, 2020, I, 2020 has convinced I, a lot of people that it might be a simulation. Yeah. Uh, I, if, so so that the, the one thing, that, that I'm most disappointed in is that nobody has picked up on my refutation of this idea. Uh, and it's part, and I, looking, back, looking back on it, I think I should have given it that particular essay, a title like um, Why We're Not Living in a Simulation. Instead, I, get, I, um, I, I gave it the original title, which appeared in a book of essays about Scott Adams. So the essay is called Scott Adams and the, um, and the Pinocchio Fallacy. Um, the, the Pinocchio fallacy being that uh, a boy made of wood. 
can have consciousness. Um, so, so, um, so that's so. I, I would love somebody to to pick up on my article and 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 really start attacking this idea that we're living in a simulation, which is so crazy. Um, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, I, I've written uh, I've written a standard sort of popular treatment of atheism, defending atheism, called Atheism Explained. Uh, and that's uh, that's probably been my most successful book in terms of sales. Um, and I have a, uh, uh, I've not just in that book, but elsewhere, I've had some criticisms of the so-called new atheists who I think uh, make certain mistakes. Um, uh, I've also written or co-written a couple of books on psychotherapy, three minute therapy with Michael Edelstein and um, uh, therapy breakthrough also with Michael Edelstein. Um, and uh, I'm I'm quite pleased with the way those books turned out. Uh, so, um, uh, so I hope that uh, if people are watching this, they might pick up one of my books and read it. So you heard it here, folks. Here is your call to action. Go out into the world and tell them that Dave Ramsey Steele thinks that anyone who thinks that we're in a simulation is wrong and wants to argue with them about it. Get that out there. Get the get it out. He he wants to get into the popular debate as to whether or not we're in a simulation. Which again, twenty twenty. I mean, we had murder hornets. It kind of feels like a simulation at times. It feels mm-hmm. like someone's pressing put us in hard mode. Uh, you know, a hard difficulty mode this year. But well, th- again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you are always welcome as a guest on My Fellow Americans, and and thank you again for for your time. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Might fit. We might just unite and come together and become hybrid.